please stand as you are able for the reading of today's New Testament lesson from the book of Acts, chapter 11, verses 19 through 26, and chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, who had brought up, who had been brought up with, the, with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Well, thank you, Charlie, for reading our lesson this morning, and greetings to all of you in the name of Christ. It's so good to be with you on this rainy Sunday morning, reflective Sunday morning to be in God's house. We're grateful, and as Jim, Brother Jim has already said, we're so grateful to our online congregation, to all of you, uh, wherever you are who are visiting with us today or who are a regular part of our worship service. It is wonderful to be with you. I always love uh, away games for the Titans, too, for some reason I've noticed, particularly at 1045. I love Titan away games. And so uh, we are hoping for another win today, and uh, it is wonderful to be with each of you. Uh, Thank you to Mason. Thank you to Jim for leading us. And also, as Jim mentioned, from 1933 World Communion Sunday that was Uh, started by a Presbyterian church, as he mentioned, which has caught on over those years for, uh, what, 88 years now. We've been gathering at the altar uh, here in Brentwood and across the world, sharing with brothers and sisters the means of grace which comes to us through the body and blood of Christ as we celebrate communion. It's also ironic today that in our confirmation class, we have 87 sixth graders who are part of our confirmation class, and we'll be gathering today, this afternoon, to talk about communion and what that means to us, baptism, the sacraments, and what it means to us to be a part of the worshiping body of Christ. So we're glad that you're here as we continue this series that we started about two months ago. We started on August 8th. We're working our way through the book of Acts, the Acts of the Holy Spirit as written by Dr. Luke, which was a sequel to the gospel that he wrote. And we're calling this series, uh, for two more weeks after today, we're calling this series Empowered. Last week, we got together and talked about the conversion of Cornelius, 
who if you didn't know was the first Gentile to be baptized and received into the flock of God. It's interesting, in that section where Cornelius was baptized, that's Acts 10 and 11, we typically refer to that as the Gentile Pentecost. Acts chapter two, that you know from memory, is, is the Jewish Pentecost. And Acts chapter eight, when Philip goes to Samaria and preach, and preaches in the spirit fall, that's the Samaritan Pentecost. And so what we're beginning to see now in the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit is causing the movement, the gospel, the witness of the church to go viral. And we noted last week when we were talking about Cornelius that Cornelius wasn't the only one who was converted that day. Simon Peter was also converted. You say, well, what about at the sea, at the Lake of Galilee? Wasn't he converted then, of course? What about at Caesarea Philippi, where he became the first to say, you're the Christ? Wasn't he converted then? Of course. There are many conversions that we undergo as people of God. And in that particular story, Simon Peter was converted of his need to distinguish between people. He was converted of his own sort of tribalism, of his own entrenched prejudice, of his intolerance sometimes for the Gentiles who the Jews would often refer to as dogs, unclean. And yet in that particular text, the Spirit of God expands Peter's scope, Peter's witness, to include now non-Jews, a Gentile Roman centurion from Caesarea. Thus, what we're seeing now is the witness of the gospel, the mission of the gospel is expanding not only geographically but ethnically and culturally, effectively fulfilling the promise of the risen one in Acts 1.8, who said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria and to the utter ends of the earth. And it's happening, just as Jesus said. The gospel is going global. So what started as a Jewish renewal movement is now spreading, notice in the scripture that Charlie read, to Phoenicia, which is modern-day Lebanon. Isn't it ironic that we have a ministry now that we're engaged in, in Beirut, in Lebanon, and we have for the last several years. It's spreading to Phoenicia, it's going to Cyprus, which is an island in southern Turkey, and to Antioch, which is a harbor city in ancient Syria on the Orontes River, not far from the Medita Mediterranean coast. In Antioch, apparently now, there is a large number of Greeks who are responding to the message. Now, these Greeks are not Hellenists, as we know the term. They're not Greek-speaking Jews. They're not Jews at all. They're Gentiles who had no Jewish heritage, no Jewish lineage. The gospel's going viral. Josephus, in fact, called this city the third leading city in the Roman Empire. There was Rome, there was Alexandria, and there was Antioch. Historians referred to Antioch as Antioch the Beautiful because of its long paved boulevard that ran right through the city, north to south. It was flanked by a double colonnade with trees and fountains on either side. It was Antioch the Beautiful. 
And though Antioch was a Greek city by origin that dated back to 300 BC, its population, which now numbered a half a million, was largely cosmopolitan. In other words, there were Greeks living there, there were Jews living there, there were Orientals living there from Persia, from India, get this, even China in the first century. And this city was known for its diversity. And I think it's safe to say that Antioch was the first multicultural church in the New Testament. And by the way, you also see the diversity in the church leadership, don't you? There's Simeon called Niger, which is Latin for dark complexion or black. There is Lucius of Cyrene, Cyrene's in North Africa. There's Menean, who was actually the foster brother of Herod, Antipas. He's a blue blood. And later Barnabas of Cyprus and Saul of Tarsus. And so the leadership of this church in Antioch is reflective of the diversity of the city. It is a mix of humanity. It is a mix of different races, ethnicities, cultures, worldviews, and perspectives. And there's one thing that holds them together, a common confession. Every one of those people from wherever they come have met Jesus and their confession is what holds them together. Jesus is Lord. Did you know that that was the original confession of faith? Before the Apostles' Creed that came out three centuries later, the original confession of faith for a Christian, three words, Jesus is Lord. You make that confession, you're in. And Luke, who's always summarizing ministry, says in chapter 11, verse 21, and the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to God. Well, good news travels fast, almost as fast as bad news. I saw a sign the other day that said, bad news travels fast, but good news takes the scenic route. I love that. News gets back to Jerusalem that Antioch is growing in diversity and in number, gets to Jerusalem, which is headquarters. It's the home office for the movement. And so they do what home offices often do. They send an emissary. They send a representative to check it out. Now, I want to give you some context. Do you remember in Acts 7 that after Stephen's death, Many of the believers fled from Jerusalem. You remember that? We refer to this as the Christian diaspora. They scattered across the world because of the persecution that began with Stephen. But the 12 apostles didn't leave Jerusalem. They stayed put. This is headquarters. They're still guiding the movement. They're still leading the movement. And so when they hear what's happening on the mission field, what do they do? They send an emissary to assess the situation not to control it, not to hinder it, but to support it, to guide it. In fact, they did the same thing in Acts 8 when the apostles heard about the Samaritans responding to Philip's ministry, they sent Peter and John to check it out. This is what structure does. This is as the church begins to organize. And what's interesting to me is the missionaries don't ignore the apostles' authority. Now stay with me on this. 
Accountability to the apostolic tradition is absolutely necessary. It's crucial because spirit and structure go together. And yet it's obvious to me when you read the book of Acts and the epistles that the church is always playing catch up with the Holy Spirit. Have you noticed that? Always. The Holy Spirit is always pushing the threshold and the church is constantly playing catch up with the Holy Spirit of God. Fascinating to me that when Peter baptized Cornelius, the first Gentile, he didn't do a mother may I with Jerusalem. He was led by the Spirit, he obeyed the Spirit, and he anointed this soldier and later reported it to the apostles. Some of you know this better than me, that sometimes it's better to ask forgiveness than to ask permission. But they never thumbed their nose at authority. The missionaries never thumbed their nose at the apostolic tradition. Now, we're living in an age, I think, in the 21st century of anti-authority. I see it sometimes. And sometimes those of us in leadership have earned that kind of anti-authority, anti-institutionalism. We see it whether it's in the legal profession, whether it's in the religious profession, whether it's in medical care or in the government. There is this anti-institutionalism sometimes in us that would frankly rather burn it down than renew it and reform it. On the other hand, there are some on the other side who would rather keep the status quo than change anything. You remember how many Methodists it takes to change a light bulb? Six. One to change the bulb and five to tell you why the old bulb was better than the new bulb. It was Karl Barth who said, faith in the revelation of God has nothing to do with an ideology that glorifies the status quo. And yet we live in that kind of environment, don't we? The Holy Spirit is moving in Antioch and the missionaries do not thumb their nose at the apostolic authority. They report to them. They're still in alignment with them. And so the apostles send an emissary. Apparently the 12 were too busy to go and so they sent a man whose name was Barnabas. This is a good choice. His real name is Joseph, but they nicknamed him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. I love that. We need some Barnabai in the world today, yes? Barnabas was his name. He had the gift of encouragement. Did you know that that is a spiritual gift, the ministry of encouragement? If you look at Romans 8, the inventory of the spiritual gifts of God, there you'll find with serving and teaching and preaching and administration, you'll actually find the gift of encouragement. In fact, that word in the Greek language, you know what it is? Paraclesis. Did you know that that's also the word for the Holy Spirit? Paraclesis, comforter, supporter, encourager. Barnabas has the gift of encouragement. And oh, by the way, Barnabas is from Cyprus. You say, what difference does that make? Makes a big difference. 
Apparently, guess where the first missionaries to Antioch were from? Cyprus. In fact, in chapter 11, verse 20, Luke says some men, and this is before Barnabas got there, some men from Cyprus went to Antioch and began to witness to these Greeks, telling them the good news of the Lord Jesus. Turns out some of Barnabas' own kinsfolk opened the door to the Greeks. And now the apostles, who are very wise, are sending another Cypriot to encourage the flock. This is indigenous evangelism. And I love verse 23. Chapter 11, verse 23. When Barnabas got to Antioch and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad, and he encouraged them all to stay true to the Lord with all their hearts. That's what we were doing last week in Waverly, Tennessee, Humphreys County. My son and I had the privilege of going to Waverly and preaching a series of services. We were team preaching together. And Jim, I have to tell you, I I cannot remember anything more meaningful than sitting at the feet of one's son listening to God's word through their voice, through their heart. I I cannot listen to my son uh, without tears. And also because he's such an upgrade in the chapel preaching family. We were in Waverly last week and we saw places like this. We visited with people, we prayed with people. Hundreds of homes like this that are gonna be condemned, that are already condemned, or that are in so bad of uh, the need of repair. I used to fish in that creek, Trace Creek, that runs right through Waverly. And, and you know, the, what we call the projects are right there on the creek, and they're the ones who were most affected. I, I cannot tell you what it meant uh, to us and to them to share the check that you all shared through your flood relief, to present that check to them, there's more coming. I cannot tell you what it meant to us to share that with them. In fact, um, there is an art park now on the side of town where artists are coming in from all over the nation and they're, and they're, they're painting pictures of, of the county's grief. I have a, a picture of Ryan and Riley. You know about this, these seven months old twins. Their daddy was holding them in the midst of the flood as the tide was rising and all three of them were swept away by the flood. And in that art park, they're lamenting. The artists are there lamenting and and weeping and and drawing and painting pictures of, of all of that. And yet I have to tell you that Andrew and I were astounded by the grace of God in Waverly. We were amazed by the people who gathered to pray and and to proclaim and to worship people. The pianist there, she had lost everything. This is the second time she's lost her home. And she was still there praising God, praying, proclaiming the unsearchable riches. And while we went to encourage them, we were the ones who were encouraged you ever had that? That's, that's the nature of ministry, that, that when you bless somebody else, you're the one who gets blessed. And we encouraged each other to stay strong in the Lord. That's what Barnabas did. That's what we're called to do. But what Barnabas did next 
in this text is what really impresses me. He assesses the situation in Antioch. He sees a need, but he doesn't try to do it all by himself because there are no solo hero leaders other than Jesus in the scripture. It's all about community, you know. He sees these new converts and he sa- they need discipling. They need to be taught. They need to be trained. They need to be instructed. They need spiritual formation. So you know what Barnabas did? He made a quick trip to Tarsus to look for Paul and he convinced Paul to come to Antioch. He knew that Paul had been trained as a teenager, as a young adult by the greatest Jewish teacher in Jerusalem, Gamaliel. He knew what Paul had experienced on the Damascus road, that he had met Jesus, the risen one face to face, and that he'd been in his study ever since that Damascus road. And so he came to Antioch and together, Two by two, this is the way Jesus intended it to be. Barnabas and Saul taught the people in Antioch. In fact, there were some who believed that the author of Acts, Dr. Luke, may himself have been one of the adult confirmands who sat at the feet of Paul and Barnabas during that year. Now, I want you to note the irony in this passage. You remember how I said a minute ago that it was Stephen's death that caused the believers to flee Jerusalem for Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch? Well, do you know who was the ringleader of the execution of Stephen? It was Paul. He held their coats, which was a way of endorsing the stoning, the lynching of Stephen. And yet here he is a few years later, standing in Antioch, teaching some of the very ones that he had been persecuting. And now he's gathering instead of scattering. And he's preaching instead of persecuting. You see the irony in that? It's amazing. And all of this serves to emphasize an important point, I think, about the role of the church. The church is empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to nurture the flock, to train, to feed, to teach according to the apostolic doctrine so that we too can disciple others. Not so that we can just get fed, but so that we can disciple others. So that the teaching church not only enables church growth, it enables church depth. The believers in Antioch, because of team teaching in Paul and Barnabas, became deeper in their devotion to Jesus, which, by the way, enabled them to go wider with their witness. Because in Acts 13, we see that after a year of confirmation of teaching, As they were worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit came to the church and said, set apart Barnabas and Saul for a greater mission beyond Antioch. And they accepted the call without really knowing where it would lead. David Livingston, you remember, the great physician and missionary to Africa, 
was in the bush at one point in Africa when he received a letter from his supporting organization asking, have you found a good road to where you are? If you have, we want to know so we can send other men to join you, to which Livingston replied, if you have men who will only come if there's a good road, I don't want them. I want those who will come if there's no road at all. The Holy Spirit makes a way where there is no way. And so the church is not just a gathering place, it's a sending place. It's a place where we come and are fed and nurtured and trained and instructed, but it's also a place from which we are sent. In fact, it's no accident that the word apostle, do you know what it means? One who is sent. And that's what the church does. That's what the Spirit does. One word, and then we'll prepare to come to the table. By seven o'clock on October the 20th, 1968, at the Mexico City Olympic Stadium, it was getting dark. The air was cooling down at last, and the last of the Olympic marathon runners were being assisted to the first aid stations. Over an hour earlier, about six o'clock, Mamo Waldi of Ethiopia had charged across the finish line, winning the 26.2-mile race, looking as strong and as vigorous as when he had actually started. And as the last few thousand spectators began leaving, suddenly they heard police sirens and whistles through the gate entering the stadium. Those who were left in the stands turned their attention to the gate and they saw the sole figure of one wearing the colors of Tanzania who came limping into the stadium. His name, John Stephen Aquari. He was the last man to finish the marathon in 1968. His leg was bandaged and bloody. He had taken a bad fall early in the race, but he kept going. He was the last one to finish And now all he could do is limp his way around the track for one last lap to the finish line. The crowd stood and applauded as he completed the lap. And when he finally crossed the finish line, there was a reporter who dared to ask the question that everybody was wondering. You were so badly injured. Why didn't you just stop? Why didn't you just quit? Why didn't you just give up. And Aquare, with quiet dignity, said, my country did not send me 7,000 miles to start the race. They sent me to finish. And so he did. And so it is with God. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. We're not simply called to start. We're called to finish. So it is for those who are sent because there is no quit 
in the Holy Spirit of God, in the paraclesis of God. He empowers us to go the distance, to make a way where there is no way, so that the witness of Christ will go deeper and wider to the glory of God in you. And that's our task. We are empowered to go deeper in our witness so that others may come to see the risen one in us and give glory to God. In Jesus' name, amen.